Ladies and gentlemen, drivers, gig workers, and everyone in between, welcome to This Week in Rideshare Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Hoffa. It is Friday, November 3rd, and this week, an Uber driver shares his story, DoorDash pushes tips, and Amazon destroys evidence. Legal Rideshare breaks it down. And of course, from Legal Rideshare, I'm joined by the co-founder and lead attorney, Bryant Greening. Bryant, happy Friday and happy birthday. Well, thank you very much, Jared. It's it's a real pleasure to, to share this uh, special day with everybody who's listening. Yeah, like, what a, <laughs> there could be no better place for your birthday than do This Week in Rideshare podcast, right? I, this was really my birthday wish, and it just it <laughs> happened to fall on a Friday this year, and things are really looking up for me. Amazing. Love it. Love it. <laughs> We're gonna, let's get right into it. We'll just start with Monday. Um, interesting story. I've heard these before, but this is uh, it's uh, eye-opening. Um, one, one driver shares how he made $80,000 last year, and this is from Business Insider, and they reported, quote, last year Rich said he made over 80000 driving for Uber, um, but he said it took a lot of hours to earn this income. He calls himself retired. Uh, but whenever he's not traveling, he usually drives between 40 to 55 hours a week for Uber. So he's completed over 17,000 trips since he began driving. And just over the past year, he put in 77,000 miles on his vehicle. He did say he makes $22 an hour before gas uh, and other vehicle expenses are accounted for. Um, a lot of these times we see these articles and it doesn't uh, mention that. Uh, but he did say that making money from driving is far more difficult than ever. Uh, he said, quote, there were a number of times when I'd make over 2000 a week, uh, even as high as 2700 in one week. However, those days are long gone. Uh, Brian, this is an interesting article just because it highlights a few things. Number one, uh, someone's honest example of how much they make. And number two, the very clear reality that it's not like it used to be. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I took away from this as well. There, there's a lot that goes into calculating the earnings of an Uber driver. And um, I, it was nice to see that, one, this this man is able to make what seems to be a pretty good living um, in terms of the, the amount of money that he's making per hour. But we don't have a true sense as to his take home because it doesn't address how much gas is costing him. It doesn't address the wear and tear in his vehicle uh, you know, it says that that those things have not been accounted for, but how much do those things cost? And um, what does that $22 an hour really become when you start taking those things into consideration? Um, the other thing that I took away from this was what you said at the very end is that the money isn't what it used to be. So since the very beginning, wages have seemed to fluctuate and um, right now we seem to be in, in the worst place that we've ever been in terms of driver pay. Um, so while one driver is able to take home $22 an hour before expenses are considered, uh, it, it seems like a lot of drivers are, are having trouble making ends meet. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what that means for driver pay as, as we move forward, but, um, we still don't have a true sense as to what they're making and we, we get confirmation that it's getting worse. Yeah, that's, that's the key there, the confirmation. We're seeing it from veteran drivers, we're seeing it from new drivers. So it is a real thing, you know, even if nothing else, we can't really nail down. That, for sure, uh, I feel like has been proven. Um, let's head into Tuesday. Fascinating article. What happened when Uber came to town? Uh, one article breaks down the arrival of Uber in D.C. in 2011. 
And this is from Dissent Magazine. They explain, quote, public debate arose immediately. While few denied that Uber's operations in D.C. violated the law, the question remained, what should D.C. policymakers do about it? Uh, Three answers emerged. One, change Uber to accommodate the law. Two, change the law to accommodate Uber. And three, whatever is done, make sure the city does not appear to be anti-innovation. They went so far then to explain the process of what happened that day. And someone even said, quote, what happened today with Uber and D.C. is the dawn of a new local politics, tech and social exercising newfound muscles on a policy level in real time. Uh, Bloomberg News editor and author Brad Stone agreed at the time that Uber had flexed its political muscles for the first time in one. A new tactic was then added to the playbook. When traditional advocacy fails, Uber Uber could mobilize its user base and direct their passion towards elected officials. Uh, Brian, this is a very long and lengthy story about the introduction to Uber into D.C. in 2011. But, whoa, it is fascinating. It's just all laid out. It's just, you know, it's interesting to see where where we started and where we are now and what happened. To look back on this period of time is really fascinating because people forget that Uber was not always what Uber is today. They had to fight their way into cities. um, And a lot of times they just bulldozed their way in and let the cities figure it out later. Um, So to to get this behind the scenes view of what the city was doing and what they were thinking and the considerations that they were um, scared of is is really quite interesting. We've talked a lot before in the past that Uber has this mentality of, you know, you know break it and, and see what happens and deal with the repercussions later, or, um, you know, just, just come in and take control, and then the city's going to be too invested to get rid of them. Um, that's really what seemed to happen in D.C., and it happened in Chicago, and it happened in, in various other cities around the country and around the world. Um, People in, in local government were not prepared for Uber's tactics. They were not prepared for uh, Uber's playbook and their, uh, you know, just the the way that Silicon Valley operates when it comes to town. Um, so this this history, you know, historical article of, of what they were doing and what they were feeling is is really quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It just really hit it home and shed light on something that I didn't even really think about. Which is, and they said it, I mean, they knew, D.C., just like everyone else knew, look, they're breaking the law, but what the hell do we do about it? And what was brilliant and awful at the same time on Uber's part is that they were able to pin it on the politicians. If you don't agree to our terms and you start shoving regulation, we're going to say, Mr. Governor, that you don't want to create jobs. I mean, what a, you know, what a way to stronghold and kill off a taxi industry while threatening you know, loosely threatening politicians that, look, we're going to paint you as the the city and the governor and the mayor that didn't want to give jobs and money to people. Just crazy. Yeah. And their mobilization of their users. So we've seen them use that tactic when trying to enter new cities, when trying to, um, you know, fight off regulations that would require minimum wages or safety technology or or various other um, matters that Uber has had to deal with. They get the user base motivated. They explain that whatever law they don't want to be passed is going to be bad for the user experience and could result in Uber leaving town. So they they learned these tactics a decade plus ago, and they're still employing them today. 
Yeah, 100%. It just, I really, everyone, you need to read this article from Descent Magazine. It's just, it's so good. Uh, we're going to head off into Wednesday. This is actually some good news. Uh, DoorDash warns users who don't tip. Uh, this is from People.com. They reported, quote, the food delivery service has been testing the efficacy of issuing a warning message for customers trying to leave a $0 tip uh, for drivers. And DoorDash confirmed this. So orders with no tip could potentially sit for longer at the restaurant. So now a pop-up will appear on the food delivery app if a user puts $0 in the tip amount. Um, but this is in the new app message, might not be on the app forever. They even said this is something that we're currently testing. It's kind of a pilot. They're going to look closely for feedback. I do think, however, Bryant, this is a really uh, efficient way and simple way to just kind of nudge the customer to, to let them know you should tip. Yeah, I like this. I, I Let me first start by saying I wish that the companies would pay the drivers more and not leave it to the customers to make up the you know the crappy pay that that they're the companies are offering but with that said um i i like that there's an encouragement to leave drivers tips because that's obviously going to increase drivers take home and sometimes all people need is just a little bit of a reminder to do the right thing um you know so often people will just you know hit zero tip and, and move on with their life. But when that message pops up and says, is, is that really what you want to do? Do you really want to stiff the driver and not give them any tip whatsoever? I think a lot of people will have a second thought and, and leave something. Um, and if everybody leaves something, that's going to put the drivers in a much better position in terms of their take home and the, their ability to make a living. Yeah, it's something that I really hope uh, you know companies like Instacart do as well because they – as we discussed and exposed, you know, there's a lot of tip baiting going on there and also just a lot of people giving zero tip. I think it's nice. It kind of, like you said, reminds them, hey, are you, is this really what you want to do? And the wait time is key. I think it makes it so that it's not just a, oh, feel bad for the driver, which I agree they need to make more money anyways. But what it really does is says, look, there's going to be repercussions if you don't tip because, there's supply and demand. And, you know, if there's a lot of orders, your order is going to sit. I think that's a good way to do it. I think it's a smart yeah. way. It, it's just, I think it, it, it makes sense to me all around. And incentives, rewards, repercussions, it, you know, use the right words. That, that's exactly what this does. And it, it's a win-win then because the driver's making more money and the customers who do, you know, pay, uh, get their food faster and, and get what they want. So it, it's a, I think it's just a positive um, situation for everybody. Totally. And, and speaking of Instacart, uh, Instacart's carts get smart. Uh, I managed to nail that. I don't know how I was able to say that correctly, but I did. <laughs> Payments add quote, caper carts use computer vision and AI to automatically identify products as they're put in the cart. Customers can bag items as they shop and pay from any place in the store. And this is from a press release while also using loyalty accounts to get savings and promotions at launch, they'll reduce lines and congestion while freeing up store associates to focus more on customer support. The cart screens also help customers easily find items on their list, stay on budget, and access tailored recommendations and deals as they browse. Um, now, I think this is actually really cool tech. I think this is going to be absolutely helpful for Instacart shoppers. I've talked to a lot of them, and I know it's extremely stressful to find this stuff at new stores. So I'd like to see this roll out more. Yeah, I think this is just a classic example of the 
tech industry innovating to make life easier for the people who are using its product. And, um, you know, the particular features here, they're great. I, I like them, but I, I think it's just a broader, there's a broader sense here. When companies can innovate and adapt to make their products better, uh, more user-friendly, uh, safer, you know, whatever you can do to make it a better product, you should do it. And it, it should, there should never be a time in which innovation stops. So I like to see that, that, uh, the company is continuing to improve and I hope, um, you know, other companies follow suit, like innovate, innovate, innovate. Let's, let's keep striving for perfection. And, uh, here we're one step closer. Yeah, exactly. And I just, it's great again for shoppers. I think this tech helps them out a lot. I've heard a lot of stories about they just don't know where to find things. It gets tough, and this kind of simplifies things. So awesome. Uh, hopefully it keeps expanding. All right, we're going to end up with Friday here. Interesting story. Amazon's execs are accused of destroying evidence. Uh, this is from Seattle Times. They reported, quote, Amazon executives allegedly destroyed two years of communications that the, that the FTC requested as part of its antitrust investigation into the company. Uh, so apparently Amazon executives knowingly deployed practices that would avoid a perfectly competitive market or change tactics when it realized Amazon could lose its advantage. The FTC alleged in newly unsealed sections of its lawsuit against the company. Uh, Amazon also switched course on a controversial algorithm that the FTC uh, alleges raised prices for consumers during periods of heightened outside scrutiny. So apparently from 2015, so 2019, Amazon ran a secret algorithm internally called Project Nessie to induce other online stores to lower their prices because they felt compelled to keep track with Amazon's prices. Uh, quote, aware of the public fallout it risks, Amazon will turn the algorithm off during times of intense scrutiny, then flip it back on when it thinks that no one is watching. Pretty uh, damning allegations here, Brian. Yeah, uh, I think... As a lawyer, my legal advice is don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't destroy evidence. Don't commit uh, antitrust violations. And, um, you know, don't don't uh, break the law generally. So then, <laughs> that's going to be my takeaway here. Um, I am not an antitrust lawyer. I am not going to pretend to be able to speak to the, um, you know, the nuances of, of what Amazon was doing or not doing. But I can tell you the allegations are quite damning. And destruction of evidence when a federal agency is asking for said evidence uh, does not look good and often ends with people um, either heavily fined or in jail cells. So I, uh, yeah. I wouldn't want to be these Amazon executives right now with these allegations levied against me. Now, I, I, I obviously know your, your focus is personal injury, mm-hmm. um, but for, I'm just curious on, on a legal standpoint or just as a, as a lawyer who would see this review this or know this the fact that they know that there is a secret internal program and knew the name does that mean that someone flipped basically that someone's that they got a hold of someone that said yeah we were doing this i mean that's pretty crazy yeah they got the information somewhere so you know that there's been an investigation whether it's somebody flipping or whether it's a you know documents that have been uh obtained through subpoena or, or various other legal mechanisms. Um, the fact that the, that the allegations are so specific makes one believe that there's a lot of evidence as to their veracity. 
Um, so when the federal government pursues a, a company like Amazon, they're not doing so just on a on a hedge or on a you know some sort of inclination um, that something's wrong. Um, there is real evidence that they have gathered and they believe they have a strong case. Um, so I would be I would be quite worried if I was Amazon and particularly these executives who are being accused of knowingly and willfully uh, standing in the way of this investigation and, and committing real crimes. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Um, uh, before we head to the weekend, though, of course, um, I'm going to give give you the floor, Bryant, and then, uh, yeah, we'll head off in the weekend. Before we head into the weekend, we always remind uh, everybody to stay safe on the roads. And should something happen, should you be involved in an accident or somehow get injured on the job, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Time is of the essence. We want to make sure to arm you with the correct information and strategies to have the best possible insurance claim or uh, lawsuit down the road. Um, consultations are always free with Legal Rideshare, so please uh, don't hesitate to uh, to reach out to us through our website, LegalRideshare.com, um, or you can email us at help at LegalRideshare.com. Uh, those are the easiest and quickest ways to, to find us. Excellent. Well, thank you, Bryant. And as I like to say, that is the end of this week in Rideshare. See you next week.